Good morning, everyone. It's great to be together with you this morning. If I haven't had the chance to connect with you in person, my name is John, and it's my privilege to be able to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. As we come to this passage from the Bible this morning, I want to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. God, we thank you for this beautiful promise that you are near to those who are brokenhearted, that you are near to those who suffer. We thank you, God, for this promise. We thank you that you are near to all of us by your spirit and that you delight to teach us and that you delight to see us grow in ever-increasing measures of Christ-likeness. And so that's what we ask for this morning. We ask that you would help us to see Jesus clearly. We pray that his, who he is and what he's done for us would be compelling for us and that our hearts would be warmed and stirred by seeing what he's done for us. Help us understand this passage. Help us know how to apply it in our own lives. And we ask that you would continue to change us into your likeness. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. A well-placed warning is a beautiful thing. If you're anything like me, you don't typically think of warnings in a very positive light, but warnings are actually a very important part of life because they tell us things that we may not know on our own. And if we pay attention, if we just look around us in the world, we'll see that there are warnings that are all around us and they come to us in just a variety of different forms. Some of them come to us in the form of signage, I remember I was hiking one time on an island in Red Wing, and the trail split off onto two different paths around the sides of this island. And the one side, there was a pretty steep drop-off and a very narrow trail, and there were places where there was actually a rope that was like embedded into the rock face. And there was this sign that said, danger, experienced hikers only. And of course, I consider myself an experienced hiker and a thrill seeker, so I went down that side of the island, of course, for sure. You have seen uh, things like this. If you've driven, I think it's over near the St. Croix, uh, there's places uh, near the bluffs and the rock faces where you'll see warning signs that say, danger, falling rock. If you're in the grocery store after there's been a cleanup of a spill and the floor is a little bit wet, you'll see a warning sign on the floor that says, caution, wet floor, letting you know that it is uh, potentially slippery. 
Uh, we see warnings coming to us in the form of labels, like on different products. I always think of like, who was the person whose fault it is that there is a warning label on a blow dryer saying, don't use it in the bathtub, right? I always just wonder, like someone had to be the reason there's a warning label on there. And we see that in warning labels on all sorts of different products and things. Uh, there, there are internal kind of warnings. Maybe you go into a situation and something just doesn't feel right. Your spidey sense or your sixth sense or, you know, your discernment is just like something about this person or something about the situation just doesn't feel right. And that's a kind of internal warning. Uh, Verbal warnings. I received many of these when I was in junior high and high school. Uh, Lots of verbal warnings from teachers. And so we can experience verbal warnings or verbal sort of um, reprimand from teachers or from people in the workplace, from bosses or managers. And of course, we've all had someone at some point in our life say to us, I wouldn't do that if I was you, <laughs> right? which is a uh, very gentle way of saying, I'm going to laugh when you get hurt, <laughs> right? I wouldn't do that if I was you. So warnings are a, actually uh, a very important part of life. And because of this, we shouldn't be surprised that we find warnings in the teaching of Jesus, and find warnings given to us in the Bible. Sometimes those warnings come to us in very uh, direct ways, where Jesus will say something like, watch out, or be careful, or pay attention. Sometimes they come very directly. Sometimes the warnings we see come to us in something of an indirect way, where you just read about a situation, and you're like, I know that this passage is warning me, don't do what you're reading about. So there's different warnings we find in the Bible, and this morning, we get to look at one of both kinds, the direct and the indirect warnings. There's a lot in this passage. Uh, This is easily two Sundays worth of messages that we're looking at in one shot here today. So we're going to be looking at this at a pretty high level, and there are going to be parts of this that I simply don't touch. Okay? You may be disappointed with, oh, I was wondering about this verse or I was wondering about this and I'm just like not even going to touch it. And one of the things that does is gives you the opportunity to go out this week and to read the book of Mark and to spend time with Jesus and to do some exploration and ask God, what is, how does this connect to the rest of this and what do you want in here for me and how do I apply this? And so you can take the next step and do some of the work on your own. This week, and so I encourage you uh, to do that, but we are not going to touch everything in this passage today. So, at a very high level, what we're going to do is spend a few moments exploring these two warnings. And the first warning that we see here in this passage is about the dangerous poison of spiritual tribalism. It's a warning for us about the dangerous poison of spiritual tribalism. So as you heard read, one of Jesus' disciples, John, comes to him and says, Hey, by the way, Jesus, uh, there was this guy who was casting out demons in your name, and we like totally shut him down and told him to stop. And that seems sort of odd to us. Uh, and it, if we read this in context, we see this is like super ironic, <laughs> right? Because just two stories ago, there's a father who brings his demonized son to the disciples And they're like, hey, we can heal your son. We can drive this demon out. And they fall flat on their faces. And they're acting in their own authority rather than the authority of Jesus. And so they fail to drive out this demon. And as a result of it, uh, they just look like a bunch of buffoons. Two stories later, 
they see a man who is not one of their group, but who's casting out demons, who's doing it successfully, and they're like, hey, Jesus, we told him to stop. And you get the sense that they're like maybe almost proud, you know, like expecting Jesus to be like, oh, good job, guys, you know, like telling that guy to stop casting out demons. And you just look at how just ironic and how foolish it looks that they failed to cast out a demon and then are forbidding someone else who's actually being successful at casting out demons or telling them to stop. And so it's just, it's, it's absurd. And it gets even worse the closer you look. Pay attention to the reason why they tried to forbid this person from casting out demons. Verse 38. We saw someone driving out demons in your name. We told him to stop because, here's the reason, he was not one of us. This is actually worse than it looks on a surface reading because a more literal translation of this where it says he was not one of us, is he was not following us. That word follow is the word that's used throughout the book of Mark to describe someone who is an apprentice of Jesus, who is a follower of Jesus, who is a disciple of Jesus. And you can see how backwards the disciples have it because they're like, Jesus, he wasn't following us. And it's like, no one told them they should be following you in the first place. Right? And, and maybe this is sort of a presidential we here. You know, a presidential us. He wasn't following us, which includes Jesus. But still, you can see they're putting themselves on the place of Jesus as like equivalent to him. Saying like, well, you know, he's not following us. And Jesus is like, that was never the point in the first place. It was for people to follow you. And so we see them, uh, again, just totally blow it here. And what's happening here is that they are devolving into a form of like spiritual tribalism. What they're devolving into is this like us versus them mentality. There's our group, and then there's those people who are not a part of our group. There's those who follow us and those who do not follow us. And what they're doing is they have set themselves up as gatekeepers of the kingdom of God. As if someone else doing ministry in Jesus' name and authority needs permission from them to do it. As if they are the ones who get to determine who's members of the kingdom and who's not. So they've elevated themselves to this position of being gatekeepers of the kingdom of God. And Jesus corrected them. In verse 39, he says, do not stop him. And he gives the reason. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. So what Jesus says here in response is, this is proverbial in nature, okay? Meaning that this is generally true most of the time, but it's not like always true every time in every case forever, okay? So it's a proverbial kind of saying. And essentially what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, There are, right now, and there will be in the future, all kinds of people who do ministry in my name and who do ministry in my authority, and they are not accountable to you. They are not following you, they're following me. And so you should not be trying to stop people who are doing legitimate gospel ministry in my name, in my authority. You shouldn't be stopping them because, after all, you are not the gatekeepers of the kingdom of God. Do you see what they're, what they're doing? This sort of uh, us versus them mentality of, well, they're not like us. They're not a part of our group. And so we're going to stop them from doing ministry. 
Now, even though we live in a very different cultural and social and religious environment, this warning against the danger of spiritual tribalism is something that is uh, a very relevant warning for us as well. Because we, like them, there's a danger, there's a tendency for us as well to sort of devolve into this sort of thing, this us versus them mentality. There's, there's the danger of us that we would put ourselves in this position as gatekeepers of the kingdom of God. So we can look around and we can see in our world, our country, and in our state, and in just our local area here, there's like all sorts of different denominations, right? Different Jesus followers who have uh, aligned themselves with one another because they have a, a similar set of convictions, about a lot of different things. And so you'll see denominations that are, you know, that are Protestant, that are Catholic, that are evangelical, that are Baptist, that are charismatic, that are all these different kinds of denominations that are out there. And many more, if we could go around the room and, you know, there's just lots of them out there. Lots of different denominations, lots of different groups, right? Lots of different ministries and parachurch ministries and different coalitions and different sort of, you know, movements of of people that are aligning together. There's all sorts of different churches, some of them more formal, some of them more informal, some of them very liturgical, some of them more spontaneous, all sorts of different ministries and groups and churches and denominations all over the place. We can see it. And the danger for us is that we would, like the disciples, fall into a gatekeeper mentality, right? And what happens is we don't try to do this, but what happens is we, we notice things about the way other people do ministry. But it's not just that we notice things that people do different than us. Oh, the, you know, their music is different than ours or their, you know, way that they teach is different than ours. And that, you know, they do ministry and community this way or, you know, we notice things. But it's not just that we notice things. Those things that we notice become value judgments about the ministry that other people are doing. And well, they don't do it like us. And since we have all these, you know, this is, this is the stuff that we found really helpful and the stuff that we really enjoy. And so there, there can be this sort of way of all of a sudden we begin to evaluate other people's ministry based on its comparison to our ministry, rather than whether those churches or followers of Jesus are living in faithfulness to Jesus and so we can, if we're not careful, very easily fall into the same kind of gatekeeper mentality. And just to be really clear about this, like there, it is good for us to notice, okay? It is good for us to notice and to look out at the world and to see that there are different kinds of churches and different kinds of ministries. Because the reality is that it takes all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people. And we should be so glad that there are churches out there where people who would never come to Elmwood would go to another church because that church, uh, it just, it, it feels more like home to them. We should be glad that there are differences among churches and ministries in the kingdom of God. We should be glad for that. And it is also appropriate at times for us to exercise a kind of maybe prophetic critique of another group or another ministry or church or leader who is like clearly left following the way of Jesus, right? So it is okay for us to recognize those things. And there's a time when it's okay for, and when we should maybe speak up about certain things in a sort of prophetic critiquing kind of way. And that's probably less often than we think it is. Probably less often. 
Because the danger is that we would be consumed with our ministry versus their ministry and we would devolve into this kind of gatekeeper mentality that we see with the disciples in this passage. And the good news for us in all of this is that we are not accountable to God for any church except our own. Isn't that great news? We are not held accountable for what any church down the street or in any other part of the world or country is doing. We will not stand before God and give an account of anyone else's life except our own. Of anyone else's church except the church that we were a part of. And so the good news is because we're not responsible for that, because we aren't the gatekeepers of the kingdom of God, what that does is it frees us from spending a bunch of time and energy critiquing other people's ministry and frees us to be radically present doing what God wants us to do in this little corner of the world. Right? So we don't have to, we don't have to worry about other churches because we're not responsible for them. And it doesn't do us any good to sit around and complain and to fall into this sort of gatekeeper mentality. So we don't have to keep tabs on anyone else's church. We don't have to keep tabs on anyone else's life. And we can avoid this danger, this pitfall that we see the disciples falling into of this, uh, adopting this kind of gatekeeper mentality. So that's the first warning we see here, sort of indirectly, about this Uh, this danger of spiritual tribalism. But the second danger that we see here in this passage is the dangerous poison of unrestrained sin. We're only going to look at verses 43 through 48. Jesus said, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm that eats them do not die and the fire is not quenched. So notice how Jesus has structured this little teaching here. There are three parts, and each part has three parts. Okay, So he says, if your hand, or if your foot, or if your eye, if that causes you to stumble, then you are to cut it off or pluck it out, and then he gives a reason. So there's an if, a then, and, and a why. And the why is because it's better to go into eternal life It's better to enter the kingdom of God with a body that is maimed than to go into hell with a body that is fully intact. So that's what he's saying here. And I think uh, for us to sort of wrap our minds around what Jesus is getting at here, there's two important words for us to understand. The first word is the word stumble. If your hand, your foot, your eye causes you to stumble... Now, this is one of these sort of uh, times where it's helpful for us to look at how is this same word used in other places in the book of Mark? Because that helps us know, gives us some clues as to what Jesus might mean here with stumbling. Because I think my default is to just sort of equate stumbling with a sinful action. And so let's just look at how Jesus has used this word in the book of Mark. 
So in chapter 4, Jesus is giving a kind of warning where he's saying to his disciples, he's saying, listen up. Be careful how you listen. You know, perk your ears up and listen to what I'm teaching you. And he gives this parable of these four kinds of soil. And each of those soils represent a different kind of person who can, each soil represents ways that we can receive the word of God. And one of those soils is a very shallow soil with rocks underneath it. And Jesus says this in chapter 4, verse 17, he says, speaking about this shallow soil, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. That's the same word translated here, fall away. It's the same word that Jesus uses when he says, uh, if it causes you to stumble. So stumble, fall away, trip up, these are, these are the same word. Jesus used this word again later in chapter 14, where he's talking to his disciples about how they are all going to disown him and abandon him. And he says to them, you will all fall away. And again, it's the same word. So this word for stumble or to trip up or to fall away is used these three different times in the book of Mark. And I think that as we look at this, what this can give us some clues into is that a person who stumbles is not merely someone who commits a sinful action, but someone who loses trust in Jesus. Right now, it, it, there is a sense in which the accumulation of unrepentant and unrestrained sin does lead us to fall away from Jesus. So I'm not saying it's less than like sinful actions, but I don't think when Jesus says, if you cause someone to stumble, I'm not sure he's talking about like a specific one instance of sin. He's talking about a person who has disowned Jesus. He's talking about a person who has fallen away from or has walked away from Jesus, who's abandoned him. And he's saying, if you, if anything causes you to stumble, you must stop at nothing, stop short of nothing to rid yourself of it. And the reason why is tied to the next word that's important for us to understand, which is the word hell. On the south side of the city of Jerusalem, there was a place called the Valley of Hinnom. This was a valley that in the Hebrew Bible times and the times before Jesus was used uh, often throughout history as a place of child sacrifice where different nations or different uh, people of different religions would bring their children and offer their children, would kill their children in, uh, as an act of devotion to these uh, pagan gods. And so this Valley of Hinnom was known for that thing. This is the place where the children were sacrificed. Over the course of time, this became a garbage dump, appropriately so, right? <laughs> Reflects what the, what the valley was used for. But this became a garbage dump where everyone brought their garbage and all their refuse and they just dumped it in the valley of Hinnom and you would burn your garbage out in this giant like burn pit. And so this is something that in a city the size of Jerusalem, there was never a time where the, where the fire like fully went out. There was always burning, there was always smoldering, there was always some sort of smoke rising from this valley because of the number of people that just brought all of their garbage and all the refuse there just to burn it in this giant burn pit. In the time leading up to Jesus' ministry, this place, this valley of Hinnom, which goes, uh, which goes by the name Gehenna, 
This valley became the primary image for the place of God's judgment on his enemies. So when people thought about God's judgment on his enemies or God enacting his justice on those who have rebelled against him, the image that came to their minds was this valley of Gehenna. This valley of Hinnom where there's, there's burning and it smells and it's filled with garbage and human waste. And the worms that are there, the, the, the little critters and the animals are you know, scouring things up and scavenging and, and the fire never goes out. This is the picture that was in the Jewish person's mind of the place of God's judgment and the place of God's justice on his enemies. And we see that here in Jesus' quote when he quotes from the book of Isaiah where he talks about the worm that eats them does not die and the fire is not quenched. So this is one of the most sobering teachings of Jesus, right? This is one of his most sobering teachings where he says, if anything causes you to stumble, if anything causes you to live in unrepentant or unrestrained sin, if anything would cause you to walk away from Jesus or to disown him, if anything would lead you away from Jesus, you have to get rid of it. You have to stop short of nothing to cut it off, to gouge it out, to get rid of it. And this image of like cutting off your body parts. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Gouge out your eyes, do whatever it takes. Right? It's an extreme picture that Jesus is using here and that's precisely the point. He's saying this is such a big deal. It's better to have no hands and no feet and no eyes than to enter into the place of God's justice. It is better to be physically maimed than to with your full intact body go into this place of burning in Gehenna, this place of eternal torment. Friends, you know that there are certain places you could go or certain situations you could find yourself in that would lead you away from Jesus, that would lead you to stumble. I think you know that there are certain maybe friends or friend groups that you could hang out with. There are maybe certain kinds of relationships in your life that would lead you away from Jesus, that would cause you to stumble. I think you know that there are probably uh, times of day where if you find yourself just like aimlessly surfing the internet or scrolling on your phone, it's not going to lead you any place good. It's going to lead you away from Jesus. Or to put it a different way, if you know that scrolling through social media breeds comparison in your heart between you and other people because you see how good their life looks, at least on the exterior. You know, you, you, you see how happy everyone looks in their pictures and how good their body looks compared to yours. And if scrolling social media leads you to a place of comparison between you and other people, if it leads you to a place of judgmentalism where you start seeing people and you're like, oh my goodness, there he goes again posting this thing or that thing or talking about this or talking about that, and it leads you to become judgmental. If that leads you away from Jesus he would say, you've got to cut it off. You have to cut it out. 
The same thing, if, if you know that getting marketing emails, right, every time you, you know, sign up for a, you buy a piece of clothing or buy something from your favorite brand and you get on their email list, and then two or three times a day they're sending you like, hey, here's this, this little sale we have going on, and hey, here's this new thing that we have coming out, and, and if getting those marketing emails for you, if that breeds a heart of discontent within you, where all of a sudden you start saying like, well, you know, I thought I was okay in life, but I didn't even know that there was this thing that was out there that I now need. I didn't know it existed until I read this email, but now that I know it's there, it's like, man, I need to have this thing. And if that leads you to feel discontent in your heart with what God has provided for you, and if that leads you to become less generous because all of a sudden, now I've got to spend more of my money on getting all of this stuff, if that's what it does, Jesus would say, you have to cut it out. You have to cut it off if it leads you away from Jesus, right? Some of you know that if you have video streaming apps on your phone, you watch one video and you snap out of it three hours later. And it's like, I've just wasted an entire evening of my life that could have been doing something productive, you know, like enjoying relationship with the people around me getting to know my friends who don't know Jesus, spending time with Jesus in the word. And if you know that having that on your phone leads you to a place where it's like, you know, I just find myself often following the path of least resistance into just like mind-numbing video watching, Jesus would say, if that leads you away from him, you have to cut it out. You have to cut it off. This is what Jesus is saying here. The essence of what he's saying is if it causes you to stumble, get rid of it. If it causes you to stumble, if it leads you away from Jesus, if it leads you into the accumulation of unrepentant or unrestrained sin in your life, you have to get rid of it. Because the stakes are simply too high. Now, what Jesus is saying here is he is not saying that we need to just live a bland, awful life of self-denial. Okay? If it causes you to stumble, get rid of it. And the reason is because he is worth losing anything to gain. Yes, this passage is calling us to kill sin in our life. It's calling us to recognize the significance and the severity of anything in our life that would lead us away from Jesus. It does call us to kill our sin, and it also invites us to come and find the one who's worth giving up everything to gain. This is a very hard teaching, especially in our particular cultural environment, and it's because we crave and we live off of what makes us feel good in the moment, don't we? And so anyone who comes along, even if it's Jesus himself, who's a well-respected teacher by many people, If Jesus comes along and says, you should deny yourself anything that could make you feel happier in the moment, that person, in our sort of culture broadly, is viewed as out of their mind. We crave and we live off of what makes us feel good in the moment, and our hearts should be broken that in the pursuit of pleasure... Many people reject Jesus, who is the only one who can satisfy their insatiable longing for pleasure. Right? Jesus is not saying here, you need to choose between following me and a life of misery. 
He's not saying that at all. The choice is, do you want momentary pleasure now that will lead you to eternal ruin later? Or do you want a taste, even if it's a small taste of eternal joy now, that will one day give way to more pleasure and enjoyment than you can even possibly fathom in this moment? That's the choice that's set out before us. And because that's what's at stake, Jesus says, if it causes you to stumble, get rid of it. If it causes you to sin, cut it out of your life. Easier said than done, right? This is part of why we need the community of the church, not only to help us identify these things in our life, but to help us say, I need help because my heart craves what this thing can give and I need you to help me treasure Jesus above this thing. We need each other, and we need the help of God's Spirit to do this, and we don't do this as just like, well, I need to just grip my teeth and cut it out. Jesus is not calling us just to do a bunch of, you know, self-effort kinds of things here. He's calling us to come to him because he is the one who's worth losing anything to gain. This is the invitation of coming to the communion table. The invitation of coming to the communion table as we do each week is to give up everything in order to follow the one who gave up everything for you. And so as we come to the communion table today and every Sunday, we do so knowing what it costs Jesus in order to bring about our redemption. What it costs him to free us from the chains and the bondage of sin and death and the evil one. We know what it cost him. He gave up the riches and the glory of heaven to come and to suffer and to die for us. And it's a joyful response to that. It's in joyful response to what Jesus has done that we say, I want to rid myself of anything that would draw my attention and my affection and my heart away from the one who gave up everything for me. So we come forward today and we receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And we are reminded, not just of what he's done for us, but we are reminded of how beautiful and compelling he is. And so we pursue a life of holiness. We pursue a life of killing our sin, not as a form of legalism, but because Jesus gave up his life for us. So this is the invitation. Come to the table today Give up everything to gain the one who gave up everything for you. I want to leave just a few moments of silence for confession, for reflection, and then we are going to come to the communion table together this morning. So would you take a few moments?